This week we're going to continue our Advent series by looking at Isaiah. Scholars say that, that this is the gospel of the Old Testament, and it's, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, there's so much hope, so much truth, so much that we see of Jesus in this book. As we study its words today, I pray that you would be encouraged and sustained by them and the hope and promise that they hold for each one of us. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, another day of grace. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We give all this to you, thanking and praising you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I don't know if we have like very many, many uh, like fantasy lovers out here. I, I, I love fantasy, like Lord of the Rings. That's a big deal in, in my house. In fact, we, we just found out that we actually own about like five copies of the two towers because we just continually thought that we had lost it or we'd misplaced it or, or something. And then we would buy another one and then we'd find the one that we thought we'd misplaced. I don't know. It's just kind of one of those weird things. So we have a bunch of them. But I think my favorite of, of the trilogy, my favorite of the books, my favorite of the movies is the last one. The Return of the King. Fantastic movie. And one of, my, one of my favorite parts of the whole movie is at the very end. I don't know how familiar we are with it, but there's Mordor. That's the bad place, right? That's where all the orcs are. That's where the, the big definition of evil in, in, the, in the series is, Sauron. That's, that's the bad place, Mordor. And, and all the armies of the West, the, the humans and the elves and all the, the dwarves aren't really there, though they have some representation they are trying to take on, trying to defeat the armies of Mordor. And, and they have their, their climax at the Battle of the Black Gate, the Battle of Mornanan. The armies of, of Aragorn, who is like their, their, their king, their leader, he hasn't actually assumed the mantle of king at this point, but he is their unified leader, the, the ranger Aragorn, and he's rallied these armies around him, and they're charging in, but some of the men are scared. 
Some of them, they're, they're like, yeah, no thanks. I mean, that's, that's a lot of dudes that you want us to fight. We don't, we don't want any part of that. We're good. So he said, all right, then why don't you go clean up some of these little towns over here? You can go take care of some of them. They, they need some liberation in, in some of our other towns. And I'll take those that want to go and assault the enemy. I'll, I'll take those that want to go and, and, and try this heroic charge. We're going to take down the Black Gate. We're going to take out Sauron and his armies of orcs and trolls and, and all of these, these armies he's gathered around them. We're going to go take them out. And Aragorn and the armies of the West, they had 6,000 men. 6,000. It was recorded that the army of the enemy, the army of Sauron and the orcs, had 10 times and more than 10 times greater numbers than the armies of the West indicating that the battle was between an army of 6,000 and an army of 60,000 plus. This was an army that they could not defeat. It was a battle that they could not win. And as you watch, you, as you watch the movie, you see them before the gate, and they, they're just in a, they're in a circle. And all around them is the enemy. And there's more pouring through the gates to, to fight them. And then they begin the battle. They begin fighting. And I mean, they start off heroic, right? They start off like landing some blows. But the waves of the enemy, they start to do their number. They start to take their toll. And it's just not looking very good for the armies of the West. It's not looking good for Aragorn and Gandalf and... Legolas and Gimli and the armies, the guys that we've, the heroes that we've fallen in love with through the series, the heroes that we're so invested in, it's just not looking good. Things are dark. It's a, it's a battle that they just, they couldn't win. They couldn't win. In our passage today, Isaiah is writing to and about a people who are in a similar situation as that of Aragorn, Gandalf, and the armies of the West. They're in a battle that they cannot hope to win. They're surrounded by darkness. We are surrounded by darkness. I mean, there's the reality that all we have to do is, is turn on the news and we're inundated with stories of sin, stories of, of darkness, sexual deviancy, lying, slander, bombings, murders. And the people doing these things are, are not just those that we might expect to do them, but also our political, social, and religious leaders. But, I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, we don't even have to turn on the television to become familiar with the darkness. Have you ever looked at someone other than your spouse with desire? Have you ever lied to your neighbor, to yourself? God, have you ever looked down on someone for not meeting your expectations? Or have, you, or have you ever looked down on someone because you may not be able to live up to theirs? That's just the smallest, right? Sin. Sin is something we all struggle with. We all understand the pull, the allure of the flesh, for we each have darkness. Inside us. Though we try to keep it buttoned down, though we do our best to keep it hidden, to keep others from noticing, I mean, it's with us. It's a part of us. 
Each of us knows what it means to walk in darkness. Thank God for the light. Thank God for passages like this one in Isaiah. I mean, this whole passage is about the triumph of God's grace. Though we were in the darkness, God was not content to let us stay there. He's shown a light on us. God uses darkness to symbolize oppression. The oppression of sin, the oppression of the enemy, and he uses light to symbolize liberation. He has liberated us. The ones who were walking in darkness suddenly found themselves blinking under a new light. They didn't do anything to bring that light about. They they made no contribution to it. They didn't even realize it existed before it shone on them. They deserved, we deserved the oppression we had been under, but God was not satisfied with that. He's shown on them the light of liberation. He gave to them, to us, a gift, a savior. The light is not the only example of liberation from oppression that this passage gives us. In fact, it gets a little more detailed in verse 4. Our text reads, You have broken as on the day of Midian. You have broken as on the day of Midian. It's, it's, it's lacing out like the, the staff of the oppressor. These, these are things that, that is, are going to be broken as they were on the day of Midian. And this is a reference to the freedom fighter Gideon. I don't know how familiar we are with, with Gideon or, or a bunch of the judges, some of the judges. But Gideon was a judge in, in the Old Testament, a time before kings. A time when, when Israel was crying out for a king and God was like, I should be good enough for you. You don't need a king. Just, just follow what, what I'm asking you to do. And, and instead, what they continue to do is stray. They continue to ignore God. They continue to say, yeah, we're going to do what these guys are doing. We're just going to go this way. And so God would send a judge. And in the case of Gideon, he was a coward, really. I mean, if we're being honest, Gideon was, he's kind of a coward. He was hiding. When, when God came to him and said, I'm going to use you, he was like hiding under a tree because he was scared of the people of Midian. They were oppressors. They'd come riding in on their horses and they'd, they'd just take whatever crops they want. They'd come into your house and they'd take your food. They, they were physically oppressing the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were scared, man. They were scared. And they had turned to other gods. They turned and they were specifically worshiping Asherah at this point in time. And one of the first things that, that God tells Gideon to do is to go and tear down the Asherah pole. Tear down this symbol of this other god and, and then be used. And so how, how does he use Gideon? I mean, again, Gideon, it takes some convincing. But he, he's like, all right, we're going to go face this massive army of Midians. They're totally overwhelming us. We're going to go face them. We're going to go take them. Who's with me? And so he calls on a bunch of the people from the different tribes. And they all get together. like, all right, we're going to go do this. And God says, no, Gideon, there's too many men here. This is way too many men. Gideon's like, are you kidding me? We're already outnumbered like a ton, like way much. And, and God's like, yeah, there's too many guys here. If anyone's scared, just send them home. So Gideon says, all right, is anybody here like scared about this? Does anyone not want to go fight this massive army? Does anyone not want to go riding into certain death? 
A bunch of the guys were like, yeah, I want to go home. And he's like, all right, you guys can go. Get out of here. Don't worry about it. You don't go out of there. Don't feel guilty. God said you can go, so go for it. So they leave. They head out. And God's like, yeah, there's still too many men. So he has them like drink out of water, right? All right, everyone, we're going to drink out of this river. Have a, have, have a sip out of the river. And so depending on how you drank out of the river, if you, if you cupped it in your hands and drank it, or if you just stuck your face in and, and slurped it down, that, that was the next deciding factor. So they send the, another chunk of them home, and, and God's like, all right, you got like 300 men. That's, that's fantastic. That's what I want to use to break the oppression. And Gideon's like, oh boy. Okay, here we go. So how does it happen? He's like, take torches and pots and your vocal cords, and we're going to break these dudes. So they hide around the camp, and at the signal, they all break their pots, raise their torches in the air, and they give a big yell, and then God does his work, right? This wasn't this, this 300 men with their torches in their pots. It, it wasn't going to do anything to Midian, but God working through them did it, and he sent the armies of Midian into disarray, fighting each other, destroying each other. They, they, they fell upon each other, wiped themselves out in terror. They're, they're scared. And then, and then the Israelites were able to charge in, and, and Gideon is hailed as this, this freedom fighter. And though Gideon was a freedom fighter used by God for that purpose, Isaiah looks ahead to an even better liberator than Gideon. God used Gideon to liberate the Israelites from the oppression of the Midianites. And Isaiah is using that, that that liberation from oppression, and saying, it's going to be better than that. Because in verse 5, our text takes liberation a step further. It says, I'm doing away with this stuff forever. As Raymond C. Ortland writes in his commentary, Our liberator will not only defeat all the forces of evil, he will put an end to conflict itself. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. The passive voice will be burned, whispers that this victory is not our accomplishment. We step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. The victory has been won. Just as he is the one shining the light, so God is also the one dispelling tyranny and liberating us from oppression. He's doing all of it. How? (laughs) How is God doing this? In the case of Gideon, he worked a miracle. Gideon and his band, you know, the, surrounding the camp and lighting the torches, breaking pots and yelling. And then they just watched as the Lord threw the Midian armies into confusion and disarray and they fought each other. That's how God delivered the Israelites from the hand of Midian. How does he do it for us? To conquer darkness, you know, we expect a conqueror. We expect a mighty warrior on a white steed ready and capable to fight the dragon. 
We expect a revolutionary general, one who will replace the corrupt and morally bankrupt rulers, the darkness that surrounds us, that we walk in. And to put it plainly, I mean, we expect a hero. Our vision of heroes today comes in many shapes and sizes, but they all have a few similar characteristics. They're strong. They're courageous. They can handle themselves in a fight. What is our hero, the one who will liberate us from darkness? What does he look like? What what does our passage say? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child, an infant. What? What? I mean, I've got an infant in my house. This is going to be his first Christmas. I mean, he's cute. He's adorable. He's also pretty helpless. Right? I mean, he uses his shirt as a mop as he drags himself across the floor. And then he tries to choke himself on the things that he's collected in his shirt. How can this be the answer? How can a child be the answer? How can you defeat an army of thousands with 300 men, some torches, clay pots, and vocal cords? Our God does tend to work Our God does not tend to work in the ways that we expect. Instead, he works in ways that display his power. He works in ways that to the human eye are are unassuming or impossible. When the armies of the West were surrounded by the overwhelming forces of Mordor, how did they win? Did they win because they outfought the enemy? Because they were more skilled or stronger than the enemy? They were in a hopeless situation. How did they prevail? An unassuming little creature called a hobbit entered Mount Doom and destroyed the ring of power. Hobbits are not big, tall, or even very strong. They enjoy food, gardening, and pride themselves on not having any adventures. Of all the sentient races, On the face of Middle-earth, the last creature you would expect to put an end to the fight between good and evil is a hobbit. But when the ring passes from Frodo and into the fires of Mount Doom, the fires which created it and the only fires that could destroy it, evil is conquered. The enemy that is confronting the armies of men and elves is thrown into chaos, into disarray. Much like the armies of Midian, they go crazy. And they're easily conquered. It was not Aragorn, the hero we hope for, but Frodo, the hero we need, that entered the battle and saved the day. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. God's answer to the bullies swaggering through our hearts, minds, and our own history, plus, I mean, the history of the world, 
is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is a child, an infant. His answer is Jesus. Maybe not initially the hero that we hoped for, but absolutely the hero that we need. Our verses tell us that he has established a new government, a new kingdom, and that it is something that he is supporting, that he is causing to exist. It's part of his victory. Now he has rewritten what was, and he has created something new. He has established a kingdom in which we can have a relationship with God. The kingdom of God is a now and a not yet. The Bible tells us that it is among us and also that it is coming. As John Piper puts it, the kingdom of God is God's reign. His sovereign action in the world to redeem and deliver a people. And then at a future time, finish it and renew his people and the universe completely. This is a kingdom established by God. And it is a kingdom that will increase, a kingdom that will have no end. This empire of grace will forever expand. If we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength and his foolishness as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph. We will live forever in his expanding kingdom of grace. Man, that sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't that just sound awesome? How could we not want to be a part of that? How could we not want to tell the world about this kingdom that all might be part of it, that all might be citizens of the kingdom of God? It's wonderful. It's amazing. But sometimes life is hard. How does that work? How is this kingdom so awesome and so great? And yet sometimes life is hard. Living in the kingdom, resting in the promise of the child of Jesus, does not mean that life will be without trial and pain. It means that God is with us through the trial and the pain. Richard Williams a young surgeon and Methodist lay preacher and Anglican minister, Alan Gardiner, went as missionaries to Tierra del Fuego. In 1851, their ship was forced to winter in a cold and bitter bay, and the supply vessel never arrived. So they had a ship that was supposed to bring them supplies. It just never showed up. Everyone on board their ship died of cold and starvation. And even as they were suffering on Good Friday, April 18th, 1851, Williams wrote in his journal, Poor and weak though we are, our abode is a very Bethel. Bethel means house of God. Beth is is the word for house in ancient Hebrew, and El is, is the word for God. It's short for Elohim. So Bethel, house of God. Our abode is a very house of God to our souls. And God, we feel and know, is here. Then on Wednesday, May 7th, he wrote, 
Should anything prevent my ever adding to this, let all my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond description when I wrote these lines and would not have changed situations with any man living. This guy is freezing and starving to death in an unnamed bay in the 1850s on his way to be a missionary. He's not going to make it. He knows he's not going to make it, but because of God, because of his relationship, because of the words, because of the promise that we have in Scripture, that ship has become a very Bethel to his soul. When your supply ship does not arrive, God can make your crisis a very Bethel to your soul, a very house of God, as you find by faith that he is with you. Rest in Christ. Rest in his unassuming entrance into this world and rest in the victory that he brought with him. What a joy we have in Jesus. What a sense of belonging and peace that he has given us as citizens of his kingdom. And rest in him as we look forward to the kingdom to come. May God give you joy this holiday season and for all seasons as you rest in him. Amen.